This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast on Open Pediatrics. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today Dr. Scott Watson. Dr. Watson is the Associate Division Chief of the Division of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital. He's also a professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And finally, he is a senior investigator in the Center for Child Health, Behavior, and Development, all at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital. Scott, welcome. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, our study. Scott, as you know, we have invited you to Open Pediatrics in the podcast because we and colleagues around the world are extremely interested to hear about uh, your study entitled The Association of Acute Respiratory Failure in Early Childhood with Long-Term Neurocognitive Outcomes, as it appears in the March 1, 2022 issue of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And Dr. Watson, I know I speak for many colleagues that this was an incredibly impressive study filling a gap that I don't recall being reported in the literature, and that is examining long-term neurocognitive outcomes amongst children with acute respiratory failure in early childhood. Could you tell us about the background and the, and the motivation for this study? Uh, I'd be happy to, Jeff. Thanks so much for the, the kind words. And I want to just start off by acknowledging this was a study was a partnership. Uh, was co-led by Dr. Martha Curley uh, and myself, and, and then we had a huge uh, group of collaborators across the country, including reaching out to neuropsychologists and uh, intensivists uh, throughout the U.S. So this was a, a really a, a large uh, group effort over many years. And it was motivated by, as you know, the increasing uh, survival after critical illness has been a huge victory for our field over the past several decades. Uh, and we've become increasingly interested in the quality of that survival and how children and their families recover after critical illness. And specifically related to neurocognitive outcomes, there are a number of things that happen in the ICU to critically ill children that raise the risk of long-term neurodevelopmental problems. Uh, children have a greater susceptibility to oxidative stress and excited toxicity. They have greater risk from ischemia and inflammation than our older uh, ICU uh, survivors, as far as we know. And then more recently, uh, there have been concerning data, uh, mostly from animal models, but also some human data about neurotoxic effects of sedatives uh, on the CNS, specifically benzodiazepines, ketamine, propofol, and even combinations of agents, which uh, are often uh, more toxic in the animal models. And then some suggestion that a new relatively new uh, medication, uh, dexmedetomidine, may be protective. So all of this uh, led Martha and me to really want to dive into this more deeply. Well, Scott, you've laid out the, the problem and the motivation. Well, uh, I find myself sitting on the edge of my seat wondering, you know, what's the solution here? You noted that the derivation here, and of course, in reading the study, this is a derivation of the RESTORE, original RESTORE trial. Could you take us through this, how you and Dr. Curley thought about designing the trial, what the methodology was? How did you do follow-up 
neurocognitive follow-up on this cohort? That's a great question, Jeff. As you know, the RESTORE trial is led by Martha Curley. It was a cluster randomized trial of goal-directed sedation in children with acute respiratory failure. And as a part of that trial, Martha planned a priori to perform post-discharge follow-up on a subset of children in the trial. I was involved in that, and we consented 2,000 of the nearly 2,500 subjects in that trial for follow-up at six months after discharge, which meant that those families agreed to give us their contact information and agreed to be contacted by our study team. One of the strengths of that trial, in addition to its size and its geographic distribution all across the U.S. at 31 sites, was that there was really detailed data on what happened to the children in the ICU. There were more than 37,000 PICU days of data, including really detailed data on sedation use, pain, agitation, and withdrawal. So we had a very, very rich in-hospital data set on these patients. So when we began to plan restore cognition, we wanted to take advantage of that cohort and decided specifically to try to get a handle on the potential effects of the ICU illness and ICU care that we would study a subset of restore subjects who provided consent to be contacted after discharge. And the subset was children that at baseline, as far as we could tell, had normal cognitive function as part of the restore trial. We collected uh, pediatric cerebral performance categories on all the subjects. So we focused on the children that were PCPC of one, which is normal. And we uh, also wanted to make sure that they were not admitted with diagnosis that would be indicative of or concerning for brain injury. So we excluded children after cardiac arrest or children who had a traumatic brain injury. And then we also wanted to uh, exclude children that had severe neurologic injury on discharge because we assumed that those children, and we assumed and hoped that those children would be followed closely after discharge regardless. We also were worried about the um, vulnerability of the immature brain. So we focused on the younger uh, subset of the restored population, age two weeks to eight years at PICU admission. And when we reached out to these families, we did more uh, medical history or obtain more medical history, I should say, and confirmed that the subjects had no underlying conditions that were associated with uh, developmental delay or neurologic injury. Then we also asked families if they had uh, siblings uh, that lived with a patient that would be eligible. The eligibility criteria were similar to the um, former patients. They had to be full biologic siblings living with the subject no history of cognitive problems, and in contrast to the subject, no history of ICU care. And neither the former restore patients nor their siblings had were able to have any anesthesia exposure. Well, Scott, I have to say, you and uh, Dr. Martha Curley are known as being two of the most, amongst the most expert outcomes researchers in our field. And many of us were really intrigued by the design that you created here, this sibling-matched cohort study. Obviously, that was designed to control for kind of nature-nurture issues, but could you tell us a little bit about that, why you chose that study design and the challenges with that? You're exactly right, uh, Jeff. It was designed specifically uh, as much as we could to uh, control for uh, environmental factors the subjects would have grown up with, uh, socioeconomic status, and then uh, there's... Uh, 
reasonably high correlation of uh, neurocognitive function and IQ uh, between siblings. So we wanted as much as we could to get to the nature part of, of controlling as much as possible for the biological factors that, that uh, affect neurocognitive function. As you know, it's challenging to study uh, neurocognitive function in children in critical illness because critical illness usually is unexpected. So we, we don't have the opportunity to do testing beforehand, which would be ideal. Uh, and then coming up with a control group is also challenging because none of them are perfect in the absence of perhaps identical twins, which uh, we had a handful of, but uh, not enough to control for everything there. Well, the other interesting feature here, of course, is the neurocognitive follow-up. As you're noting, uh, this is difficult to begin with. Tell us a little bit about, a little more detail on how the neurocognitive follow-up um, on this cohort was achieved. We're extremely fortunate to have phenomenal lead neuropsychologists as an investigator on the trial, Dr. Sue Beers at the University of Pittsburgh, who helped us reach neuropsychologists across the United States for a network of experts to conduct this testing. And the neuropsychological testing battery uh, was performed a long time after discharge, three to eight years after the children had uh, survived their ICU stay. And all the subjects, both the former patients and their siblings had to be at least four years of age so that we could use comparable tests throughout the age range. Well, Scott, I have to say, I'm unaware of any literature in our field that has examined critically ill children who prior to their illness were cognitively intact without any comorbidities who had this kind of neurocognitive follow-up. And so this is an extraordinary study design that you and Dr. Curley and your colleagues undertook. And so what should we know? What do you see as the salient findings of this study? When I think about the salient findings, uh want to start with population that we enrolled and tested. So we had 121 patients and siblings. Uh, the patients themselves were young. They had a median age of one year. So half of them were infants uh, when they were hospitalized. 28% were one to four years of age and 21% were four to eight years of age. And they were tested median age of uh, six and a half years. As you mentioned, most of the patients were previously healthy. The main reasons for admission were bronchiolitis, asthma, or pneumonia. They were ventilated for a median of five and a half days and then the ICU for a median of eight days. So they had a moderate degree of critical illness. And uh, with that amount of time on the ventilator, you would think that they were really our bread and butter patients with acute respiratory failure. 16 of the patients received ECMO or high-frequency oscillator ventilation. And then in terms of ARDS, it was about a third, a third, a third uh, at risk or mild, moderate, and severe. Uh, so a nice spread there. And almost uh, three-quarters of the patients had multiple organ dysfunction. The primary finding was that the patients had a lower IQ than their siblings, 101.5 versus 104.3, so a difference of 2.8 points, and that was statistically significant. Now, we had a lot of questions as we were putting the paper together about what does a roughly three-point IQ difference mean? That might just be uh, the equivalent of being uh, post-call or not getting your coffee in the morning. But the key here is that that difference was an average difference. And so to get that average difference, really the curve of uh, IQ scores shifted 
substantially uh, in the patients. So 16% of patients had an IQ of less than 85 versus only 7% of their siblings. That was also statistically significant. And then we looked at large differences between patients and their siblings to see what proportion of patients had an IQ score, a standard deviation below their siblings versus a standard deviation higher. So that's a 15 point difference. As you know, IQs are centered at 100 uh, and they're centered on the population with a standard deviation of 15. So that's quite a difference. And uh, more than twice as many patients had IQ 15 points below their siblings versus above their siblings. So 17% versus 8%. So concerningly, we saw a shift in the curve of IQ after ICU care. Well, Scott, those are fascinating uh, findings and of concern, obviously, that a large cohort, 20%, are left in a significantly worse cognitive position than their sibling-matched peers. But in figure two of your paper in JAMA, you also highlight that there's uh, an age effect here. Could you take us through that as one of the salient findings of your, your study? The difference was really age-related. So the largest difference between patients and their siblings was among the patients that were hospitalized at less than a year of age, and they scored on average uh, 4.6 points below their siblings. The difference was a little less in the one to almost four-year-olds. That difference was 1.9 points that the patients scored lower. And then in the older patients hospitalized at age four to eight, there really was no difference uh, at all. And it's clear that the findings were really driven by outcome differences in children hospitalized at younger ages. Well, again, these findings are just so thought-provoking, and I must say has face validity, at least with me. At least for the course of the question, Scott, where do you and Dr. Martha Curley and, and your colleagues, where do you go next on this? What's the next step in trying to unpack this and understand it better? That's a great question, Jeff. We're actually in the midst right now of analyzing the full cohort that was tested. So we had a total of 257 former restore subjects that underwent neurocognitive testing. The study we just talked about was the 121 that had matched siblings. But in the full cohort, we really want to dive deep into what their exposures were in the ICU and the relationship between those exposures and their outcomes, specifically related to sedation, whether the amount, magnitude, the type of sedation that they received or certain combinations of drugs are associated with their downstream neurocognitive function. Well, Dr. Scott Watson, I, I know I'm speaking for colleagues around the world uh, that we eagerly look forward to this next phase of your research as you've just outlined it, uh, you and Dr. Martha Curley and your colleagues we eagerly look forward to hearing what you find in that analysis. But Scott, I have to ask you, as a colleague and a close friend over the years, has this changed your practice, these findings? Another great question, Jeff. I have to say, not yet. I think we don't have enough information yet about uh, specific medications themselves. Uh, and there's an interaction between not just the medications, but everything else that happens in the ICU. We know we don't want children to be in pain or agitated after discharge, especially children that have respiratory failure at less than a year of age and really probably less than four years of age. They warrant evaluation uh, as they age and special care as they enter school. 
Well, Dr. Scott Watson, on behalf of colleagues around the world, we thank you for being on Open Pediatrics today to review again uh, the findings. Uh, again, the citation is March 1, 2022, JAMA, and the article is entitled Association of Acute Respiratory Failure in Early Childhood with Long-Term Neurocognitive Outcomes. And again, Scott, as uh, we acknowledge um, your role in this research with your colleagues, Dr. Martha Curley and others, and thank you for really all the excellent outcomes research that you have done over the last several decades, and eagerly look forward to the results of the analysis that you're working on now to dig deeper into this problem. Thanks for being with us on Open Pediatrics today. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. It's uh, really been an honor and a pleasure to be here and talk about this study. What you're doing with Open Pediatrics is just phenomenal, and it's uh, terrific to be a part of it. So thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.